0: This is Derek Sherinian. You're listening to Sonic Perspectives.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to another interview for Sonic Perspectives. I'm Rodrigo Altaf, and today we have a very special guest. I interviewed him a couple of times already, but stay with us, because this one will be a unique conversation. I'm talking, of course, about the Caligula of keyboards, Mr. Derek Sherinian. Rodrigo, hello. Hey, how are you, man? Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. Now, is it true? I heard a rumor, someone said to me that I was your very first interview.
1: You were my first interview, like, almost two years ago now, yeah, <laughs> for a different view. Oh, wow, well, how
0: far we've come. I mean, I see that you're pretty much interviewing all my friends, and that's awesome, man. Congratulations to you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, man. Thanks so much. So, we're going to try to address all your career to the extent that's possible nice yeah let's start with that nickname the caligula of keyboards Uh, where did that come from
0: caligula keyboards alice cooper dubbed me that during uh the trash tour first of all i wanted to say to you it's a very special day it marks 30 years ago when i first got hired by alice so it's it's pretty uh pretty wild to think all these three decades later Still playing music, still uh, grinding it out, making records, touring, and uh, let's hope for thirty more.
1: Yeah, of course, that's something to celebrate, man. Congratulations.
2: Yeah.
0: Alice was Alice was a lot of fun. We used to play a lot of poker on the bus oh. to uh, pass the time, and that was just his thing. He loved to golf mm. in the morning before the shows and on the days off. But on the long bus rides, it was like he'd be ready to play poker. <laughs> and overall, he was just a fantastic first uh, boss and first big gig to be exposed to the business on an international level. Being on a touring entourage, traveling on a bus, first time on MTV. Uh, the album, the album had a song called "Poison." The single, which was number six on the top ten singles charts and that's not just the rock chart but the main uh pop chart with Prince, Michael Jackson and all that. So this song was huge. And I remember going on tour with that single being as hot as it was and there was just such a buzz. Every city we came to, all the record company people in each city would be all enthusiastic and it was just absolutely uh electrifying and then every year since then <laughs> I've never experienced that having a, a hit single and so everything else has just been kind of going out and playing the record and so uh, yeah. it's, very, it's pretty interesting
2: experiencing
0: that the first time but then it never really uh, hits that level again but different levels of uh, excitement yeah. for sure but that was very uh, a great time the most fun I've ever had in my life yeah. and I'm still dear friends with Eric Singer Jonathan River Al Petrelli, uh, Tommy Caradano, the bassist.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember the, the, um, the song Poison, man, being played on MTV, not just on Headbangers Ball, but in every other program. So you're right. That was a huge hit.
0: Yeah. It was the huge hit of uh, the summer of 89. And it was a great tour. Great White <clears throat> was opening. They had a big record also. And so we did a European and Canadian tour. The package was Alice Cooper. Great White, and Britney Fox. Wow. And we were playing all the big hockey arenas in, in Europe, and then it was just in Canada. And it was just an amazing experience.
1: Yeah. Uh, you played during the Thrash tour, and you did the Last Temptation album with him as well. Did you do the Hey, Stupid tour or not? I did,
0: yes. I did the Hey, Stupid tour, and then recorded the Last Temptation album. And then after that, I did some sporadic uh, festivals like Rock and Rio,
2: Mm.
0: Monsters of Rock I did like in 96 and a couple other shows.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. And one thing I only realized recently after watching the movie again is that you're on the Wayne's World movie with Alice. What was that like recording that movie?
0: Well, it was interesting. I do was originally supposed to be the band in that movie, but they pulled out for some reason. And we were midway through a tour. And then I remember management said, hey, we're going to do two days of filming for this movie with a guy from Wayne's world. And I'm all okay, whatever. I didn't really know who it was, but I was excited that, uh, we were still, we were getting paid by the movie company and we were getting paid by Alice. So I remember it was like a double payday for the two days. Fast forward six months, this movie comes out and it was absolutely huge. And, uh, it really helped Alice's, a little bit and gave it a bump but if you're looking for my scene make sure you don't blink because it really goes by yeah. <laughs> less, less than a second yeah. But, uh, yeah it was a lot of fun yeah. it's a lot of fun
1: yeah uh, but before Alice uh, tell us the story of how you went to Berkeley and I know your friends were rally, which you mentioned uh, when you studied there what was that whole experience like was there a lot of competition and uh...
0: well the way it worked out is after my junior year of high school, I went to the Berkeley summer summer camp and it was six weeks. And it was just like a little, a way to kind of test the waters to see what the school was all about. And I remember going for that summer and loving it so much. But when I came back, I received um, a letter from the school with a full scholarship. To go to Berkeley and this was I was only a junior so this was very cool and I remember uh going to my parents saying hey look you know this is all I want to do I have no desire to do anything else this school seems to think I'm pretty good let's just this is uh what I want to do with my life and my mother was saying no absolutely not you need to finish high school you know you're only 16 And my father, God bless him, he convinced my mom and said, look, this kid is very focused and he has the passion and we need to nurture this gift and and let him go. So I took the GED and I left my high school one year early at 16 and then became the youngest student at Berkeley at the time and enrolled in a freshman. And my, uh, one of my best friends and classmates there was Al Petrelli.
1: Yeah. So I think through him you got your first gig with uh, Buddy Miles, right? No, Alice, Al Petrelli was the
0: one who was responsible for getting me the Alice Cooper gig.
1: Oh, okay. Hey, with the Buddy Miles gig, I wonder if there's any recording of, of the shows you did with him. I haven't
0: seen any. Maybe someone has one, but I've I've never seen it or any video for that matter. But I'll tell you what, that experience was something that I always cherished. That was in 88 and I connected with Buddy. I was renting a room in a house in the valley somewhere and the guy that was the landlord was friends with Buddy and I remember Buddy used to hang out around this house a lot and that's when I first met him and he was putting together a band that was going to go tour all the beach clubs in California all the way from like um, Santa Barbara down to San Diego, and so I ended up started playing with Buddy miles, and it was just an amazing experience in that he was the most talented guy I've ever played with vocally, and his drumming style was just completely behind the beat, greasy, funky, just c- completely awesome and there's some major i mean buddy played with. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. So by playing with Buddy, I'm one degree from Jimi Hendrix. And there's not many, yeah. you know, people that could say that. Of it's course. a very it's a very deep rich pedigree. But one of the things that was funny about Buddy is that he used to call me Mortimer for some reason. I don't know why. But he'd always say, Mortimer, you gotta always listen to the train. And and like when you hear a song here that <laughs> to find the groove. And he goes, you got to always feel the train. And I've never, never forgot that. And I try to keep that, a little bit of that in in every note I play and every groove. Always listen for that groove without even thinking about it.
1: So, uh, jumping a little bit, uh, from Alice, you joined Kiss as a supporting musician for a while. What was that like and how did that connection get made?
0: Well, Eric Singer was in the Alice Cooper band with me. Then all of a sudden, he... No, in 94, he replaced Eric Carr after Eric Carr passed away, Uh. and Eric became the drummer of KISS, and then they needed an off-stage keyboard player to sing background vocals and play keyboard parts. So Eric recommended me for the audition, and I go in, and the first thing Gene says, he goes, you look like uh, the child of of Paul Stanley and Cher. (laughs) And I go, okay. And so then... He just went in and, and he goes, can you play love gun? And I go, you mean just the intro? And I go, yeah. And I just played the intro of it. And then he just shook my hand and that was it. I was hired. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, was, it, it was very cool. So he did a month of straight rehearsals and, uh, and then the tour was three months of the U S arenas. And it, that was a pretty, pretty great experience being exposed to Gene and Paul, watching how they run their band. And, and the production and just it was very cool i was into kiss when i was a kid so to work with those guys it was very surreal and at that point i was like 25 years old and my credits were alice cooper and kiss Jesus. so i was feeling pretty yeah, pretty good at the time
1: yeah did you say you did backing back vocals as well for KISS? What kind of songs or all songs?
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, just like on whatever songs I could sing within my range, I would chip in.
1: Well, you auditioned and joined Dream Theater for a few years. What was it like to audition with those guys? I remember you saying that the material was quite complex for you at the time, right?
0: It was very complex. I remember it was 94, I believe. And Alice, the whole Seattle thing started kicking in Nirvana. And I remember... On the KISS tour, we were playing arenas, but they were half full. Okay. Because the writing was on the wall that there was a new genre in town that was taking over. And all the hair bands were just suffering and dying on the vine. And so nobody was touring in 94. There was nothing going on. So I was out of work. And and so I, I got word that this progressive metal band, Dream Theater, who I heard of, but I didn't know any of their music. I didn't know any of the the members whatsoever. But someone got me a recording of it, Uh and I forgot what song it was that I heard, but I remember just being really – I was struck by it because – I had never heard seven-string guitar before, mm. and then I heard the the musicianship, the sick musicianship. that reminded me of uh, the fusion stuff that I liked at Berkeley, like Return to Forever and Al Di Meola, but it was done with more of a rock metal. It was a new sound, yeah. and I thought it was really, really cool. And when I received the three songs to learn for my audition, I really felt a a, a tinge of fear because. It was very, it was more technical than I've ever had to play before, but I really looked at it as a challenge.
2: Uh
0: And so I had a couple weeks to prepare for the audition. And so I went in and I remember meeting the guys. It was somewhere in New York, right, right outside of the city. And everyone was really nice. And I went in and played and and it was a good vibe that I remember saying to them afterwards, I was very honest. I said, guys, I think you guys sound amazing. I, I've never played in a band like this before, but I would, I, if, if I had the opportunity, I would give this my all and put my all into it. Uh-huh. And so and that was it. And I really walked away feeling like, you know, 50% of it, a 50-50 shot. Oh, okay. they, uh, I go, it could go either way. And so then um, a week later, I ended up getting a call from John Petrucci saying, Hey, you're in. And shortly after, I had to move to New York.
1: Yeah, and then you did the uh, Change of Seasons. And I think, uh, from memory, I think that was the first time you had like your, your picture on an album booklet, right?
0: That's right. We did after um, a lot of touring for The Awake Tour, we went in to record. Change of season. I think the studio was Bear Tracks. Yeah. Was an, was somewhere was I forgot what it was, but upstate New York. Okay, and and that was the first time for me ever really going into the, the studio and making a record. So I remember that was a very big deal for me.
1: Yeah, and I think you got exposed to a whole new audience at the time, right? And your profile got a little bit of a boost in the prog realms, right? Well,
0: completely, because I didn't have any experience before in it. I was, I mean, my Gigs before were Buddy Miles, Alice for Kiss, which had nothing to do with prog. progressive at yeah. all. So I was yeah. kind of going into, it's pretty wild if you think about it, from never being in a prog band, going into the biggest prog metal band at the time. <laughs> it's insane, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, I had to like learn a whole new style. And I'll say this, having to learn the Dream Theater material. The the two weeks before the awake tour starts that there was the most uh, intense music uh, musical study I've ever had to do. And i I made a deal with myself that if I could get through this and make it to that first show that I can be able to get through anything musically that comes at me after this, <laughs> because, because it's one thing to go learn a bunch of songs that you can, that you've heard your whole life. Yeah. You know what I mean? That are better that are in your head, but to go learn like a dream theater, two hour set of music with odd time signatures that you've never heard before that you have to memorize. And I don't reach like, if you see me play, you never see a chart or any kind of uh, yeah. screen yeah. on stage. It's all memory because my feeling is if you're reading it, you're not feeling it. And I always will Memorize. I mean, my whole career, I've never read a chart on stage ever.
1: Yeah, and I, well, I've seen you live a couple of times and you're so focused. Are you able to think of anything else while you're on stage or are you 100% concentrated on uh, what you're playing?
0: I'm very constant. I'm very concentrated. Uh, I've, I've been accused before of, oh, you could be more animated on stage and smile more or whatever. But to me, music is. Serious business. I'm not up there to shuck and jive and high five uh, (laughs) the bandmates. You know, I'm I'm focused. You know, I want to play the best solos and and just you know vibrate as hard as possible. So, yeah, uh, sacrificing the animation. I'm willing to do that for the music.
1: No, and and one can tell when it's the case that you're focused versus you're disengaged or not interested. I can definitely tell that you're so into it, so into your playing that it's not you're not disengaged at all. Well, the first time I saw you play live, I don't know if you remember that show, but it was on the Monster of Rock in São Paulo, '98 or '99, '98. With uh, And the same festival had Glenn Hughes, your future future bandmates, Manowar, Sabotage, Slayer, Megadeth.
0: I remember that. And I was uh, just a little side note that Al, uh, Glenn Hughes saw me play that show with Dream Theater. And I made an impression on him, which um, he, he said to me after we got together in Black Country communion. He goes, you know, after seeing you play... And Dream Theater, I really made a note, You made an impression on me, and I knew that we'd play together in, at wow. some point. So. That is so
1: cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. And, well, after you left Dream Theater, you did the most insane run of albums with Planet X. Did you select those musicians yourself, or how did that project come to be?
0: Well, the way Planet X came was I was doing my first solo record with Magna Carta, and while I was in Dream Theater, I remember that Dream Theater was on a break. And so Mike Varney came to me with a solo deal. So I didn't even say anything to the band at all. I wanted to surprise them. And Mike connected me with Virgil Donati, who I heard about, but I didn't know much about him. But when I did some research and heard his drumming. I was amazed. I'd never heard anyone play like that before. So on our first jam, mine and Virgil's, we wrote Apocalypse 1470 BC, which is the opening track on my uh, solo record. And also a staple in the Planet X shows. And so it started off where I wanted to just make a really, sick progressive record because I remember after falling into infinity, there was a lot of criticism that the band was commercial yeah. and I was, fingers were being pointed at me cause I was the new, God. you know, band member. And so if the sound changes, who's the first one you, you go to the and having to replace, yeah. And having to replace an original member is not the most fun uh, task in the world yeah. because I get it. You know, when you're a fan It's like when Van Halen, I was a fan of the original Van Halen. Mm -hmm. Now you put a new singer in, yeah, he's great, but it's not the original. And so it's it's disappointment. And so I get that. But you have to understand the person that comes in and fills that slot, he has one of two choices. He can either try to do exactly what his predecessor did, or you have to pay as much respect as possible, but try to forge your own voice Yeah, absolutely. You know, and yeah. I, and so I tried to do that in dream theater like with his with the Kevin Moore solos, I would always start the solos and and quote, you know, key parts of it, but I would always take it off and and get my own vibe in there.
1: Yeah, no, I understand that. But uh, every person I talked to that collaborated with you on Planet X, uh, I mean, Tony McAlpine, Tony Franklin, Dave LaRue, Virgil Donati, they all speak fondly of that band. Is there any intention or any chance of maybe doing a run of shows? its I mean, it's 20 years of the first album now, right?
0: It's 20 years. And what's really amazing is that I didn't realize that it had such an impact on so many musicians around the world and younger musicians that are in their early twenties saying, wow, planet X, so well, we can't get the record anywhere. But I heard, you know, things of it. And it's really, it's really flattering to know that these records that Tony and Virgil and I made, they had such a worldwide reach. Yeah, But we did do a lot of touring the first couple of years and we covered a lot in Europe and then we played in Asia and, uh,
1: And Australia, too, right?
0: You know, did a lot of shows in the U.S. We did Australia, that's right. Yeah. And so we covered a lot of ground. I would love to do it again. Uh, I've talked to Virgil and Tony. Tony's into it. Virgil is kind of lukewarm. I think he has his other bands and stuff happening, and he made it clear that he's not available to do anything in 2020, which is sad because that's the 20-year anniversary. So, you know what? I'm open to doing it whenever everyone's into it you know there's no rush for me but whenever they're ready whenever it's vibrating i'm in
1: okay and another on and off collaboration you have is with billy idol how did you get involved with him and how would you compare his gigs with uh, alice and keys for example
0: well billy idol was from 2002 until 2014 so that was a a a 12-year run which is pretty much a long time to play with anyone of course any to have any kind of job I think for that matter but that was a very cool gig uh, to work with a front man that is so electrifying up there he's really a true star front man Alice was a star uh, Gene and Paul were stars you can just see the reaction that the crowd has the way that they're magnetized to them. Billy was kind of like a uh, Elvis light, but still, <laughs> he still shook that room up, and he was fantastic, and he was a great boss, very fair and very generous, and it was very important to him that his band was comfortable and, and having a good time. So, so, yeah, I really enjoyed my time playing right. that kick, and Steve Stevens was great as well great guitar player and Steve has played on a couple of my solo albums
1: yeah yeah he did uh, well let's talk about your solo career now that you mention it uh it's been a while since your last one uh, Oceana right I believe and I, 2011 yeah so eight years now man I understand there's a new one in the works maybe yes well,
0: there is. I just signed a new solo deal with Sony and I'm very excited I'm going to be well I have written the whole record I'm going to be having Simon Phillips. who will be playing drums and mixing and Simon and I have been working together since 2001. My inertia record to me, Simon is I've learned more from Simon than anyone else I've worked with. He's just the ultimate pro writing. Just the uh, He embodies excellence in everything that he does. And I aspire to be like that. I want to be in that category of musician, producer, And But being exposed to him is the best thing ever for me.
1: Yeah. and Well, he's a nice guy to boot as well. I spoke with him a few weeks ago. The best. He, He mentioned he loves working with you. But one comment I made to him was how different you and him are in terms of personality. It's amazing how you guys find common ground and are able to work together.
0: We're not that different. I mean, he's British. I'm American or whatever. But the bottom line is we're into great music and we work very hard. And we don't compromise. And so those common denominators right there supersede any other uh, personality difference. It's hard to find people that have the same passion and intensity Uh for the same type of sounds. And someone that you can walk into a room and create something from nothing and walk away with a song at the end of the day. It's, uh, It's a pretty magical and awesome thing. And that's what I do with Simon. We go up. I go up to his place for two days. Uh, in three different sessions, and we wrote the whole record. And then we're going to cut the drums in December over like a four-day period. I'm also very excited. Joe Bonamassa is going to guest on the record and come up and cut live with us Oh wow! in December. So that's awesome. good. There's also some other great guest stars, Chico Loreo from Megadeth. And he came over a couple of days here at my studio, Beachwood Manor, and we wrote an amazing song. It's like eight minutes and he's playing nylon and an electric eight string guitar i've never even played with anyone with an eight string before but this thing sounds sick jesus man (laughs)
2: and he's he's just
0: really great he's been fantastic to work with i've known kiko a long time and interestingly enough he's my neighbor he lives less than a mile away from me
1: oh wow very cool. I saw the video. He was playing something like a flamenco kind of vibe. Yeah, there's right. a
0: section and it's also kind of Brazilian. There's Brazilian rhythms in it and then he goes into a flamenco thing. So, yeah, it's wow. very cool, very creative. I'd, I'd love to work with Kiko uh, any in any capacity. I think he's... Fantastic! So I'm excited about this song. And then I have a couple other great guest stars up my sleeve, which I'll reveal later.
1: Okay. And I was always curious about the writing process of your solo albums because you work with so many musicians. Do you write the parts and then invite them to play? Or do you call them in and they write with you?
0: Mostly in the past, it's been uh, I write and then bring them in, like all the Lukather stuff. I've never written with him directly. It's always been him coming in. Uh, But with Steve Stevens, I would write with. Okay. And then most of the stuff I've written in the past is with either Simon. And then I did a lot of writing with Brian Tishy as well
1: okay let's talk gear for a minute if you can uh you're a strong advocate of vintage instruments and uh, that vintage sound like the hammond b3 the chronos the fender Rhodes, etc and the red clavier nord which is always on the top of your rig tell us about that choice yes. and why you're not a fan of the new stuff with all the gadgets and apps and stuff like that
0: well you know what i think everyone you know whatever works for everyone for me The type of music I play that's heavy music with heavy guitars, I just know that there are certain sounds that are timeless and does not take away from the heaviness. And Hammond B3 through a Leslie, and the way I have them modded and running through Marshall heads, it's just fucking balls. (laughs) (laughs) There's just no way around it, man. Yeah. (laughs) I don't care, you know, what what you're playing. There's just no substance for that sound. It's going to sound great now. It sounded great in the 60s, and it's going to sound great 50 years from now. It's not going to be one of those sounds where you're hearing, oh, that's the 80s. Like a lot of the synth sounds that you hear from the 80s, it pigeonholes you to a time period.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is timeless, the the sound that you have, it's timeless. I I call it the brown sound of keyboards because it's so unique to you as well.
0: That's a great, you're exactly right on the money. And then for strings, I'm using my Mellotron M4000, which I love. And then for my solos, I I use my Korg still. There's like signature sounds that I still use out of it. But I'll tell you what, my main lead sound now is my Nord Lead 3, and going through the amps the Marshall's, it's and and i'm going through some um a few different pedals as well it's just fucking amazing i mean
1: Did awesome. you hear that? Of course. That was awesome. So, Thank you. Know, you know, you just can't get
0: those sounds out of fucking you know,
1: yeah. computers. <laughs> I was hearing an album the other day, uh, Joe Hookstress 13. The song well, I that came in, on I was that. like, there's no way that that's not Derek, man, because it's so you, so unique. That's funny. Yeah. There you go.
0: To me, that's the most important thing is, is to have a signature style and sound. And, you know, just what you said right there, that's the one thing that people always say about my plane, that the minute that the solo comes in, whether it's an organ uh, or synth, they just know it's me because there's just a lot of characteristics and things that I do that other players don't do. And that's, thats I've always strived for that. And the person that inspired me for that was Mr. Edward Van Halen. And I recognized this characteristic at 13 years old that there was something about his plane that he just sounded like himself and he was doing things that no one else were doing sound wise and technique wise. And so I've always strived to kind of be like the Eddie Van Halen of keyboards, my approach to it. It's more guitaristic and more um, outside the box and more aggressive, more fire.
1: That's awesome, and we spoke about this before, but I can't help but ask you again about uh, playing with Eddie. What was that like, man? That crazy night there, where we had a party and you were part of his band <laughs> for one day.
0: <laughs> so, so the way that happened was, my friend has had a cover band called the Star Eppers that was they used to play the Sunset Strip, and Edward's wife it was his girlfriend at the time. Um was hiring, looking to hire a band for this huge party. I guess she used to work at this porn company as a, a publicist. And so Edward at the time was working with this director, Michael Ninn, and they did, he did some music soundtrack for it. Anyway, fast forward, they did a huge party at Van Halen's house, and so they were trying to hire a band. They hired my friend's band, The Star Effers, And which also had Brian Tishy in the band, John Karabi and Eric Dover from the band jellyfish. So they were kind of, you know, semi name players. And so, and my buddy Stefan was the bass player. And so after he got the gig, he knew how much of a Van Halen fan I was. So he made sure that I was on that gig as the keyboard player. So it was fucking unbelievable. (laughs) I show up to the 5150 and there's Ed and, um, (laughs) <laughs> just listening to him uh talk and we um we played a few songs and then we got off stage and started talking or whatever and i don't know what compelled me to say it but i said ed can you show us the studio brian tissue is next to me and it goes yeah come on and there was all these people there you know for the party texts and people getting stuff ready so but Brian and Edward and I uh, snuck off and went up and walked up the hill to where the studio was. It was a guest house, but he converted the whole guest house into a a studio. Right. And I remember walking in the room and seeing this, the studio that I've seen so many times in pictures and then looking on the wall and seeing the shark guitar from Women and Children First and all these famous guitars just being in awe and holy Fuck! Is this really happening? (laughs) I mean, this is just this is just insane. And so, uh, listening to stories from Ed, and then going back down and and doing the rehearsal, and then the next night coming and and playing the gig. The gig was a spectacle. If you look online and just look up the Gathering Van Halen party, uh, you could see the pictures. They had like it was like a circus act, but burlesque, and just fuck. Amazing night. And so it was very uh, a bucket list moment for me. To play with that—that that was always been a dream of mine—and so uh, I can scratch that one off. The
1: <laughs> very, very cool. And well, we spoke about gear a few years ago. You had the keyboard tilted towards the audience, which I thought was pretty cool. But uh, was that for the visual yeah. effect, or did it feel more comfortable playing that way?
0: It felt more comfortable. It was better visual; the crowd could see the keys. But I'll tell you, a lot of times uh, I'm finding myself slouching, and it was—I think I'm was starting of getting bad on my posture—and so. Okay. I, i've backed off on that and so for the last few years i've just been playing standard
1: okay and the first time we spoke uh you mentioned you wanted to work with dave gilmore jeff Beck, and all those english guitar players are you closer to seeing that happening or not really well not any closer than two <laughs> <no. laughs> i don't think so uh i i would love
0: to i mean those guys are pretty busy and and heavy hitters i hope one day that you know opportunity arises to play with them you never know but i would love to brian may amazing
1: oh wow yeah i'll keep my fingers crossed man for you <laughs> yeah yeah death
0: Beck is the the real one i want though
1: okay right on oh well, give him a call man
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: uh well tell us about the formation of black country communion and what's the latest news about the band
0: black country communion was put together by um, Kevin Shirley and Joe Bonamassa. Uh, it first started with Joe and Glenn, and then Kevin brought in Jason Bonham on drums, and then me on keyboards from when we worked together in Green Theater. And it was interesting. It first started off with, well, you want to come down to a studio and just write some songs and see how it goes? And I said, yeah, of course, because I, of course I knew who Glenn Hughes was and Jason I'd never worked with before, but Joe I was starting to hear a lot of really good things about. And so I wanted to be involved with it. So I went down to the studio in Malibu and it started off supposedly going to be three songs that we ended up staying a week and wrote a whole record. And that wasn't wow. the original plan, but it was a good vibe. Yeah. We kept going. So the record came out and we put it out and the response was amazing, especially over in the UK and, and Europe, like people were, blown away by it and no one was expecting this response and it got to a point where it was a no-brainer that the band had to go tour but people wanted to see it so we took the show out for the people and and people loved it and we put out the second record third record uh then there was a breakup i just been so long i i forgot even what the the source of the breakup was but the band disbanded for five years uh-huh. and then got back together for the um the it Black Country Communion four Yeah record, which was a few years ago, which came out like around the same time as Sons of Apollo.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Psychotic exhibit, Yeah, it was like horrible timing. <laughs> I remember, but it just it just works out that way sometimes. Yeah.
1: You did three shows with with uh, Black Country Communion at that time for that to promote that album. Unfortunately, I think that's what it was, right? Only three shows
0: the second but the second album we went and played a bunch of shows
1: yeah there's a live dvd and everything so, are there yeah. any plans? I know that uh, Joe's the busiest of you guys, and I think his uh, his schedule conflicts with Black Country Communion. But are there any chances over? I, I, I
0: think I heard story. I think I heard twenty twenty one. Maybe will be something. So, okay, we'll see.
1: One thing I wanted to ask you, Derek, is about your uh, association with Ingvae uh, uh When did you get to meet him, and how many tours did you do with him?
0: I first met Ingvae, and the first time I ever got a call from his people. It was probably less than a week after I was out of Dream Theater. I think once the word got out, Yngwie um, quickly approached me and flew me out to Miami. And I remember flying out there to his place and, and meeting him. I was a big Ingve fan at Berkeley. I remember when I was there in, in 1982, 83, or 83, 84, Alcatraz, and Ingve and just exploded onto the scene. And every kid... In school, was learning the Paganini Caprices and learning Black Star and and all the Ingve riffs. So to be able to meet him and come down to Miami and play with him, I thought it was was pretty cool. And so he ended up hiring me to play on a South American tour. But at the time, I was doing my Black Utopia rec- record, and I remember working a, uh, a deal with Ingve that I would do his South American tour if he would. Uh, And part of the payment was that he would play on on my record, which was awesome for me because he doesn't do a lot of guest appearances. Yeah. So I was very stoked. I wrote a song that was perfect uh, for Yngwie that I wrote with with him in mind. And so to actually go into his studio with him down there and to record my music. And what was so cool is that you always hear these stories about Yngwie where he doesn't collaborate with anyone. He doesn't you know, take, it's or the Highway and all this stuff. When he played on my record, he was so, like, he wanted to make sure that I was getting exactly what I wanted and I was happy with his performance and he was open to suggestion and it was fucking amazing. And the solo that he plays on the, mid, the middle section of Sons of Anu in... Uh, on Black Utopia. Watching him play that solo in one take was just amazing to me, being able to witness that kind of mastery on the instrument. And I actually play over those chord changes live. I do this whole Ode to Yngwie section, which is what I call it live, where I'm playing to the orchestra, and that's the exact section that Yngwie solos over.
1: Right. Uh, well, he played with you in in a couple of other albums as well, like uh, Blood of the Snake as he
0: well. He also played on, Ble- on Blood of the Snake, and it was the first time that we ever heard uh, oh, on uh, Zach and Ingve playing on the same song,
1: and oh, that was wow. on Black
0: Utopia, And then they and then they also did it again on on Blood of the Snake.
1: And and you toured with him years later uh, with uh, Generation X, right? Uh, what was that like? And uh, yes. would, you, would you do it again? That was a short tour, I believe.
0: It was only Asia, and I remember getting one morning I was working in the studio, and then within twenty minutes I got I had two phone calls. One was from Steve By, and then twenty minutes later it was Ingbe. And it's so funny whenever Ingbe calls, he's like, "Derek, it's Ingbe J." Like, <laughs> okay, thanks for letting me know that which Ingbe it was. I so, wouldn't um, have
1: known otherwise, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they just—they well, both asked me, said, "Look, we need uh, a keyboard player for this tour. Are you available?" And you know, when guys like that call you and ask you to play, you don't say no. And fortunately, my schedule was open, and uh, I went to go play. And it was also Nuno Betancourt, my my dear friend Zach Wild, who I have a deep history with, uh, obviously, and and uh, Tosin Abasi on. On guitar, I didn't play in Tosin's band, but I played with the the yeah, the Big Four, and it was pretty awesome. Right, playing with all these these different great guitar players, having to play their music, and and to conform to their styles. It's it's all about being that chameleon and being able to adapt to your environment. And so, from going to play with Zach, playing Black Sabbath songs again, what is the sound that's going to go up and compete with Zach's Marshalls. You have to play B3. You have to have that Hammond organ sound because there's Absolutely. no keyboards in Black Sabbath. So what are you going to play? You're either going to sound like a cheese puppet up there or you, you got to dig in and and make things even heavier.
1: Let's talk songs of Apollo. The, the first album, Psychotic Symphony, was uh, very well received and one could tell that everybody put their heart and soul right in that one, right?
0: I, I think so too. I think that everyone gets a chance to shine in Sons of Apollo. And that's one of the things that I, I credit Mike Portnoy for in Dream Theater. He kind of had the same vision where if you list, look at a lot of the sculptures of the songs, everyone in the band is featured. It isn't just the guitar player or, or the singer or whatever. And so we try to make sure that everyone's talents are shining as much as possible in this band.
1: When the record came out, man, I, I listened to it just before I interviewed it uh, the first time in 2017. I was honestly afraid because mm-hmm. there's so much competition for space in that band. But no, at the end yeah. result is everyone has their chance to shine, everyone has has their place in the sun, right? So I think it's it's a well-balanced sort of band. I,
0: I think so too. I, I really love the uh, the combination of Bumblefoot and myself because we're both unique players we both have the signature sounds but the way that we interact on this record and you know times where i just step back and let him go yeah and it's just really i can't wait for people to hear this new record i know the record company thinks that this one's better than the first and a lot of people that i played it before think that uh the arrangements are better there's more thought out Like, the first record, we really didn't have a lot of time to put together. We had 10 days. I had some stuff prepared before, but we never even knew each other. Like, I didn't even meet Ron until the third day of recording. Jesus. (laughs) No, I mean, practically. I mean, I shook his hand, but we didn't get a chance to really talk. Right. Because we had so much work, and we just went right into it. So, you know, with this record, we had 100 shows behind us as a band. And so we had a little bit more experience with each other. So let's hear how this, uh, how the people receive this record. I think it's going to be great. I really do. Yeah,
1: and I think I spoke with Ron uh, just before you guys started the North American tour. And he said the first album was great, but with the second one, you guys are much tighter now and know each other a little bit better. So it could be an even more focused effort. So you're right in that sense. To document that tour, there's a live album with the Div Orchestra, which came out a few weeks ago. It must have been quite a yes. tense uh, endeavor to record because he had one shot to make it work with an orchestra, right?
0: It was a very intense day as far as getting everything together and the, uh, getting the technical aspect of it, recording. I think for all of the the uh, challenges that we had that day, I think the end result turned out amazing.
1: I, I love running to that album. You know, I, I speak about this a lot in my interviews. I listen to music a lot while running and it's a perfect oh. long run album. <laughs>
0: Oh, great. Yeah, Yeah, well, that's a real long run. What are you doing, marathons? It's got to be like a three-hour run.
1: Yeah, I do marathons this time. This year, I'm going to do a half, which is this Sunday. So, oh yeah. Nice. Yeah. Congrats. 13 miles only.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Uh, The most I've ever run before was eight miles in one time. Actually, I've done it two times. One time with Kiko, when we were on tour in, on the last summer tour, Sons of Apollo, Megadeth was headlining, and so... We had time early in the day, and we went for this run in Germany on this river, and it totaled about eight miles.
1: Oh wow! <laughs> I think that's I the that end vision. of it. I
0: remember it was it was a great great workout. We're gonna have to do that again every once in a while. But I need to start running. I'm in better shape now at 53 than I was when I was 23 when I joined Dallas because I I was like heavy back then.
1: Yeah, I see the videos from that time and from your time with Dream Theater as well. You're you're a lot in in, in much better shape now
0: now than ever. And I've always had my fat all these years. I mean, my weight would go up and down. But for the last three and a half years or so, I've just been like a UFC weight. And it feels great. I'm going to... The only thing that's worse than getting old is being old and fat. So I'm going to make sure that I say <laughs>
1: I see what you mean, definitely.
0: <laughs> I, want to, I want to make sure my body looks like UFC, not KFC.
1: <laughs> that's a good one. And, well, I know the guys in the band and the record company would kill you if you said anything but what can you tell us about album number 2 of sons of apollo is there a name already a release date a direction that you can reveal or well
0: the release date i believe is january 2020 for sure sometime in january i don't know the exact date there is a a, a title but we're not it'll be announced soon okay as far as the sound It's like a continuation of the last record. Maybe the arrangements are a little bit more thought out and tighter. Mike seems to think that this album's heavier, I think she said. So I don't know. It's very hard for me, Rodrigo, because I'm so immersed in it. Um, It's so, uh, you know, it's very hard for me to look at it objectively. So at this point, I know that I did my very best in the production and writing, and it's up to the world now to decide whether it's any good or not. I'll be curious to hear what you think about it.
1: Oh, man, I, I'll i tell you this much. It's the For me, it's the most anticipated album of 2020 already. So I'm very much looking forward to it.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Well, there are a few North American tour dates already announced in January and February and a few European festivals mm-hmm. coming up, too. Uh, so I think now you have uh, enough songs to fill an entire set, right? Yes. At which point will you start the uh, pre-production and production for the, for the new tour?
0: We'll start... I think rehearsing, I think the 17th, I think I saw, January, something like that. Mid-January, we start rehearsing. I think we have four days of rehearsal, which is better than the two days we had last time. So <laughs> a little Jesus,
1: You sure work on yeah, a I tight know. schedule. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I know. Well, the problem is, is that everyone lives everywhere else. And yeah. the time is limited, you know, so we just got to make it happen.
1: Yeah. Well, I have my ticket already for the Toronto date of that tour, so I'm looking forward to it, man. Oh, great. Yeah.
0: I, I'm excited. It'll be good to see you.
1: One thing we didn't touch on is uh, the opening band of the Sons of Apollo tour is Tony McAlpine doing his solo shows. Your old partner in Yes. Yeah. So that would be a cool lineup. And are you planning to jam with him by any chance or...
0: There's no plan. I mean, there's been no talk of him sitting in or whatever, but I'm very glad that he's on the tour. I'm glad that, that we uh, made that work and I'm looking forward to seeing him out there. It's been a while.
1: Yeah. Well, those were my questions. Any last words before we close? I
0: really um, I appreciate everyone over the last 30 years that has supported my career and all of the records and stuff and bands that I've played on. <laughs> and I really look forward to seeing you all on tour with Sons of Apollo or elsewhere and I'm just very uh, blessed to be playing and, and touring still after all these years
1: Derek thank you so much man I wish you a great end of the year and an amazing 2020 with the new SOA album thank you so much Rodrigo take care buddy thanks take care bye bye for our listeners out there thank you for listening and please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel we're gonna leave now with one of Derek's signature songs uh, Sons of Apollo's God of the Sun take care and rock on